For decades, America has struggled to combat the harms of drug use, but the harms have increased and the fight is endless because we've been wrong. What if we changed our drug policies to actually decrease the harms of drug use and increase thriving for all of us? Our criminal approach to drugs had a beginning and it will have an end. Join us on the journey to end it for good. Welcome to the End It For Good podcast. I'm Christina Dent, your host, along with Mike Madison, my co-host and producer. We're celebrating our one-year anniversary of the End It For Good podcast, and we're going to zoom back out and walk through why ending our criminal approach to drugs is what we advocate for. So we host in-person discussions in Mississippi, but lots of you can't come to those. So today we're getting the presentation content of those events, which is the research and experiences that changed my mind about the war on drugs. And because this episode starts at square one, it's actually also the perfect episode for you to share. But there's one thing that you can do that would really increase the effectiveness of your share like 10 times over, and that is to put a short endorsement with it that you write. So don't fall for the belief that you have to be confrontational to get people to listen. That's actually the best way to turn people off. The best way to help them listen is to share a bit of your own journey to learn and just invite them to learn alongside of you. We're never going to end the drug war by starting a war against people who don't agree with us on reform. That's a terrible goal. But we will end the drug war by winning the hearts and minds of people who don't yet agree with reform. And the best way to invite them to consider being won over is to be kind, respectful, and, you guessed it, invitational. We actually like that word so much, it is the operative word in our mission statement. So at End It For Good, our mission is to invite people to support approaches to drugs that prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. So what does that look like? Well, we envision a country where drug production, distribution, and use are approached as a public health concern rather than a criminal justice issue. And if you've connected those dots you're putting together, we believe a legal, regulated drug market is the best approach, the one that actually does prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive. If you're wondering how can that be, that's the journey we want you to take with us. So our ultimate goal is that fewer people are harmed by drugs. But engagement on this is really hard for people for a lot of reasons. One of those is that changing our minds on anything is really stressful. Uh, Another is something that I call investment aversion, which is, you know, if any part of your career or your family has been touched by drug prohibition uh, or supporting our drug laws, it makes it that much harder to engage in this conversation and consider whether or not we may have been wrong about those things. And another is that for a lot of people, this issue hits really close to home. Maybe you've had addiction in your uh, immediate family. Maybe you struggle with it yourself. Uh, Maybe you have a lot of pain in your life um, from drug use or addiction. And that can also make it just really difficult to come to the table and consider uh, different approaches to substances. So I grew up here in Mississippi, uh, born and raised here, lived here my whole life uh, in a wonderful home. I was raised in a politically conservative home, in a wonderful Christian home. I never had any interest in drug use, um, never used drugs in junior high or high school, didn't have friends that were using. I just was not on my radar at all. I went to a Christian university here. I have a degree in Bible. Um, Nothing wild happened in my college years either. Um, We didn't do anything other than hanging out and talking by the fountain. Um, So my story really is not one of a radically changed lifestyle. It is one of a radically changed mind. So my thoughts on drugs uh, for my whole life until about five years ago were pretty simple. I thought drugs are bad and drug use is bad. And so outlawing drugs seems like the right thing to do. It just seemed like A plus B equals C. But I never stopped to consider how do you actually wage a war on drugs? What does that look like in the lives of real people? until we became a foster family. And then through about four years of foster care, I began to see the war on drugs up close uh, for the first time. What does it look like lived out in the lives of real people? 
And through foster care, I met Joanne. Joanne had been using drugs while she was pregnant. And so her son, when he was born, was removed from her custody and put into foster care. And he was brought to our house. And I didn't know anything about addiction or drug use at that time. And I could not conceive of how a mom who loved her child could use drugs while she was pregnant. So I brought um, her baby to uh, visit her for her first visit at the local child welfare office. And I had not met her yet, um, and I popped his car seat out of my van. I had my other three little boys with me and turned around in the parking lot. And there, sprinting across the parking lot, was Joanne with tears streaming down her face. And she ran over to me, and she just started covering her son with kisses while I kind of stood there awkwardly holding his car seat. And she spent her one hour of allotted time with him that day. And then I took him back to my house and she left for inpatient drug treatment a couple hours away. Now, what I felt was suspicion because this did not fit with what I thought uh, of a mom who was using substances while she was pregnant. Uh, Joanne seemed to really love her son and that just didn't fit with what I thought I knew about addiction. And so um, I felt like maybe she's just trying to maybe get me to put in a good word with the social worker. I don't really know what this is. But Joanne would call me every day from treatment, and um, she would say, can you put me on speakerphone? And she would sing to Beckham over the phone. And I just began to feel this war in my heart. The more I got to know Joanne, the more I realized she is a mom like me. And she loves her son just as much as I love my three boys. So clearly I have radically misunderstood something about addiction. And I also knew that we were putting thousands of people like Joanne in prison for exactly what she had done every year, just in Mississippi, much less the United States and around the world. And I began to wonder, could we be wrong? Because I could see now that if we put Joanne in prison, that would be really catastrophically harmful for her. It would also leave Beckham without a mom who clearly loves him very much, even though she's struggling with a complex health crisis. And for the first time, I began to wonder, is outlawing drugs, is criminalizing them the right thing to do, even if they can be potentially harmful? Because I could see that in their family, it would actually create a chain reaction of harm if we put Joanne in prison. And that would carry on into future generations by the amount of trauma that their family was experiencing through having um, their family torn apart through incarceration and then Beckham growing up without his mom. And that started a war in my mind. I began to wonder, is there actually research out there that says that what feels like something is not right here um, is true? And are there actually better ways that we could handle substances where fewer people would be harmed, where families like Joanne would not be torn apart, but would actually be uh, better helped? And so I went on this journey to learn. And over a couple of years, I learned that... um, We have foundationally misunderstood where most of our drug harms are coming from. So we have understood uh, culturally only one category of harm. Anything drug-related that's harmful, we say, well, it's the drugs. It's drug harms. That's what it is. But really, there's actually two categories of harm. One is the harm that drugs can do, um, the substances that if you put in your body, what they can potentially do. But the other is the harm from criminalizing those substances. And I'm, I'm convinced now that all of the research out there says that the vast majority of all drug harms in our world today are not caused by the substances themselves. They are caused by criminalizing those substances. I want to walk through why that is. 
We've actually seen this play out before back in the 1920s when we prohibited alcohol. So when you prohibit a popular substance and criminalize it, you introduce three new categories of harm that explode from that criminalization. The first is what happens to the market. So before we prohibited alcohol, we had legal regulated businesses that sold alcohol in legal regulated tax stores. But when we prohibited it, we pushed it underground. It didn't go away. Popular substances never go away if there is demand for them. It just transferred. And so now Al Capone and cartels are making millions uh, during alcohol prohibition while regulated law-abiding businessmen are shutting their doors. Drug markets are not inherently violent, but criminalized markets are inherently violent. They cannot um, settle their disputes in court, so they settle them on the streets with violence. That same market transfer that happened during alcohol prohibition is happening right now today with our current drug prohibition. We went from having legal regulated businesses selling all substances um, 100 years ago before we started this drug war, and we transferred that market to gangs and cartels. Again, markets do not disappear just because they are pushed underground. If there is uh, money to be made, if there's demand, there will always be people that are willing to uh, take that market on and sell. So a lot of us might want a third option. We say, well, I don't want regulated businesses selling substances, and I don't want gangs and cartels selling them. I just want them to disappear. Uh, And that is what the drug war is based on, this idea that we can just make substances, make this market disappear. And it's just not possible. There is no third option here. But we do have the option. Are we going to continue to allow the market to exist uh, being um, in charge of by gangs and cartels? Are we going to go back to legal regulated businesses? So we have this market harm transfer, but we also have what happens to a substance when you criminalize it. This is the second kind of harm that you get when you criminalize a popular substance. So what happened during alcohol prohibition is we went from having quality controlled alcohol on the shelves. You knew what was the, what the ingredients were. You knew how strong it was to when we pushed it to the underground market, you lose all regulatory control. So it's just bootleg now, whatever somebody wants to cook up in their backyard or in their cellar. That's what you're getting. No labels, no potency and purity uh, controls, nothing like that. What happens when you prohibit a substance is you immediately get a potency increase in what is available. And you can see this um, principle playing out in any sports stadium where alcohol is prohibited on the inside. So outside where people are tailgating, they're drinking beer. Uh, low, low grade alcohol, 5% alcohol by volume. But on the inside where alcohol is prohibited, they're drinking 45% alcohol by volume. Now that is not because their tastes have changed. It is because the market forces have changed. And when you have to smuggle something inside of a stadium, you're not going to smuggle a six pack of beer. You're going to smuggle a small flask of liquor because you need the biggest punch possible in the smallest package. This principle is so widely uh, understood that it actually has a name. It's called the Iron Law of Prohibition. Anytime you prohibit something, it's automatically going to become more and more potent to get it in smaller and smaller packages for smuggling. This same substance transfer is happening today. We went from having um, regulated legal medicine drugs to pushing them onto the street, and now they are contaminated. So we have that potency increase, and we also have contamination that happens. You don't know what's in it. People who are using drugs that they got on the street have no idea the potency or purity of what they are using. So there's a lot of talk in the news now about fentanyl. That is an innovation of drug cartels. They uh, synthesize powdered fentanyl and are mixing that into the U.S. drug supply now because it is even more potent than the substances that are currently on the street, and it allows them to smuggle 
uh, more potent um, substances, which means they can be in smaller packages. So this is not, um, <clears throat> this is a, a understandable response to market forces. How can we get it in a smaller package? Well, let's develop uh, powdered fentanyl. That's going to allow us, uh, I read one news story that said, you used to have to smuggle uh, a whole boatload of heroin. Now you can smuggle one suitcase of fentanyl. So fentanyl in our drug supply is a product of drug prohibition, um, this contamination that happens when you deregulate substances. So what happens um, is that a lot of people might say, um, but what about all these prescription overdose deaths? How on earth would regulating substances that are currently on the street help when we already have all of these people dying from um, substances that are legal? So we got to look at what's actually happening with overdose deaths. So in 2017, which is the last year that we have numbers for at the time of this recording, is um, there were 47,600 opioid overdose deaths in 2017. But if you look closely at those numbers, the CDC's own numbers show that 75% of people who died of an opioid overdose that year had heroin or fentanyl in their systems when they died. So we are not in the middle of a prescription overdose crisis. We are in the middle of a deregulated street drug overdose crisis. Unfortunately, our response as a nation to that has been to crack down on prescribing. So we're cracking down on the legal supply of opioids. The problem is that as we've cracked down on prescribing, the death rate has gone up. That's happening because as people get cut off of a legal supply and they're already dependent on those substances, they're moving to substances on the street because uh, the street is always going to fill any market void that the legal market is not able or willing to fill. And so people are using street drugs at higher and higher um, numbers because they can't get regulated substances and they're dying at higher and higher rates. So we've actually done a really good job at decreasing prescriptions, but we have many more times people dying. And isn't that the whole reason that we wanted to crack down on prescriptions was to prevent death? And yet doing that has created far more people to die, people who do not have to die. They could still be alive, and we could change how we're approaching prescriptions and keep more people alive from today going forward. Now, what a lot of us might want is a third option here where we don't have regulated uh, medicine and we don't have street drugs. We just have uh, no substances at all. Why can't heroin just go away? Uh, it doesn't go away. That's not an option. It is part of our world. It's always going to be part of our world. The choice that we have is how are we going to allow it to operate? Are we going to allow it to be legal and regulated or push it onto the street where it's deregulated and highly potent and contaminated? So the third kind of harm that comes from criminalizing a popular substance is what happens to consumers. So what you might not have known about alcohol prohibition is that we never criminalized users. Even the disaster that our culture knows alcohol prohibition was we didn't have this third category of harm of actually loading people into prison for drinking alcohol. That is a new innovation of our current drug war to criminalize users. So we went from treating all people who use substances as patients needing help to now treating a lot of them as criminals needing punishment. Just here in Mississippi, we have over 3,600 nonviolent drug offenders in our Mississippi prisons right now. That's not counting the thousands of people that are being held in um, city and county jails. Uh, that has a massive um, fiscal cost to taxpayers. 
In Mississippi, um, our incarceration rate is the third highest in the country. In the United States, incarceration rate is by far the highest incarceration rate in the world. We are in an incarceration crisis, but so many of those people are out of our sight, uh, and so many of their families are struggling and marginalized to the edges of society as they try to support their loved ones in prison, that it's easier for us not to see. But it is happening. If you see it on a graph, it is absolutely stunning to see how many people the United States is incarcerating and even how many more people Mississippi is incarcerating than the United States. We incarcerate more people in this country than any other culture or society or civilization in the history of the world. But for me, for me, the fiscal cost is not the most compelling uh, part of that. If it was working, then maybe we could make a case for that. But it's not working. Um, what for me is the most compelling part of ending this criminal approach to drugs is the cost to people's lives. So if we start out with drug use, uh, and even in a legal regulated market, we're still going to have to uh, deal with drug use. There's always going to be people using substances. I think the approach should be how do we help them um, be very well educated about the harms of those substances? How do we make them socially unacceptable? But we're not going to try to strong arm you into not using those substances. We should be handling it like we have our war on smoking, which has been very effective. We have done a lot of very honest education, and we've made it socially unacceptable um, largely to smoke. But we haven't forced you. We haven't put people in jail for smoking a cigarette. That's the same approach that we need to take with other substances. So when we have criminalization, we take drug use, now we introduce incarceration. That introduces lots of disconnection for people from their families and communities. When they come out of jail or prison, they often have a criminal record, and often that stays with them for the rest of their lives. That makes getting work incredibly difficult and providing for their families. All of that cycle of incarceration, disconnection, criminal record, employment difficulty, it's really traumatic on a person and on their family. And we know that trauma is actually one of the biggest risk factors for whether or not a person will experiment with drugs and whether or not they will become addicted to them. So we are creating this cycle of trauma, which is increasing the risk factors for drug use and addiction, not decreasing it. Dr. Gabor Mate, who is an addiction expert, has actually said, if I wanted to design a system to keep addiction going on a massive scale, I would design the present war on drugs because it is a trauma production machine. So we might want this third option here, too. Why do we have to have anybody who wants to use substances? I don't, we don't want to treat them as patients. We don't want to treat them as criminals. We just want them to stop using substances. But that's not the choice that we have. People from the beginning of time when humans uh, are on the earth, people have been using substances um, to change the way that they feel. And in many ways, that's a really helpful thing. Um, most all of us use substances in some way to change the way that we feel, uh, whether it's to relieve a headache or whether it's to relieve um, pain, whether it is to relieve uh, psychological um, uh, pain like depression. Um, a lot of us use substances for positive things, but in a broken world, we can also use them for harmful things. And that's where we find ourselves, not in a world where no one is ever going to use a substance, but how do we help people use them um, in helpful ways and how do we protect them and help them protect themselves from using them in problematic ways? So the United States has spent over a trillion dollars on our drug war. We have had thousands and thousands of people die unnecessarily, either from drug-related violence from the underground market or from overdoses that were preventable and happened because they were using uh, unregulated substances. And it has not worked. Our drug use rates are not lower today than they were 50 years ago when we started the drug war. 
And yet we have all of this massive collateral damage and unintended consequences um, that has happened as a result. So there's other countries and other states that have taken other approaches to substances um, other than criminalizing. And I'm just going to give you one example, and that's Portugal. Portugal in 2001 had a heroin use rate that was five times the rate of the United States current heroin use rate today. Uh, And heroin is one of our um, most problematic substances currently. Substances come in and out of um, being the the one that is most problematically used. Um, There's a rise now in meth use again. Um, But for this this last season in the United States, heroin has been a, a big problem. So Portugal took the biggest step that any country had taken yet to handle um, this massive heroin crisis that they found themselves in, and that was to decriminalize all drugs. So they did not address market harms or substance harms. They still have an underground market. It's not legal to sell these substances there. Um, They don't have regulated supply, so the substances people are using are still off the street. But they addressed this third category of consumer harm, and they went from treating consumers as criminals needing punishment back to treating them as patients needing help. They removed drug possession from the criminal justice system and moved it over to a a civil um, ticketing system. So in Portugal now, you can get a ticket if you're caught with a 10-day or less supply of substances. That's considered personal use. And um, you go before a panel and they um, encourage you not to use those substances, ask you if there's anything they can do to help you not use those substances. Um, And if there are things in your life that are harmful, they can refer you to services to get help for those if you're open to that. So Portugal today spends 90% of their drug intervention money on prevention and treatment and only 10% of it on enforcement. The United States does exactly the opposite. We spend 10% of our drug intervention money on prevention and treatment and 90% of it on enforcement. So Portugal used all of that money for a massive public health outreach. How do we help people build a life where they don't want to use substances anymore, don't need them as this coping mechanism? How do we help them get employment? How do we help them find a place to live? How do we help them get treatment? How do we make treatment widely accessible so that people can access, let's say, methadone clinics, even if they have a job? Um, In Mississippi, we only have a couple of methadone clinics. So if you live in another part of the state, that's nearly impossible because methadone has to be dispensed on site. How are you going to get that kind of treatment? So Portugal made that widely accessible. They have vans that travel all through the cities um, so that people can work and be on um, successful drug treatment. So what did Portugal find uh, 18 years now after they have done this? Well, their injection drug use rate has dropped in half. Their drug addiction rate has dropped by a third. Think of that. 30% of families in the United States who are currently living the incredible harm of active addiction, what would happen if they weren't dealing with that? That would be amazing. Portugal's drug-related crime also has dropped. If you think about um, a lot of our property crime, 8 out of 10 crimes that are property crimes, so you know people breaking into homes or stealing cars, stealing your purse, um, 8 out of 10 of those are drug-seeking behavior. They're people who are addicted to substances that are um, committing crimes in order to get money to pay for um, what is a very expensive habit um, when it is on the street. So as drug addiction has dropped in Portugal, those drug-seeking behaviors have dropped and drug-related crime has dropped, including prostitution. So for my whole lifetime, uh, we have believed that we can't have drugs without also having a drug war. But it's just not true. We can go back to a world where we handle the harms from substances 
And we end all of the harms that are coming from criminalizing those substances. We end those market harms. We end the substance harms from deregulation. We end the consumer harm from treating users as criminals. And we go back to treating all substances uh, in a harm reduction kind of way, which is actually how we treat alcohol and tobacco. We allow it to be legal, we regulate it, and we educate people about the potential harms, and we help people stop using those substances if they are open to that. So as I put all of these things together on this journey, it was a really difficult journey for me. Um, and I thought, you know, I, I'm, a, I'm a good person. I had good intentions. I was supporting drug criminalization because I thought it was helping. And what I think is happening is that that's how most of us feel. We're good people with good intentions, but we still have harmful laws. And even when you have good people with good intentions, if you mix that with harmful laws, we're going to get bad outcomes. And that's what I think is happening today. So I'm not anti-law enforcement. What I think we're doing is asking our law enforcement to enforce laws that are harmful. Uh, and I think it would actually be a positive change for law enforcement to to ask them um, to not ask them to enforce these laws anymore, to change our laws so that the ones that are enforcing are ones that are actually helping us prioritize life and the opportunity to thrive for more people. So maybe you're thinking, maybe I could get there on marijuana. I could never get there on anything else. Regulating all drugs just sounds absolutely insane. But the case for regulation is not a case based on whether or not a drug is potentially harmful. It is a case based on that no matter what a drug's potential harm, it is made less harmful if it's regulated, if we can put it behind a counter. If someone has to be 21 to access a substance, that's a lot better than on the street corner because a regulated market for alcohol, for tobacco, you're being asked for an ID. That's one barrier for an underage person to access that. On the street corner, nobody is asking for ID. You can be 13, you can be 33, you can be 63. But if you're 13, you can go buy heroin right now in the same way that a 33-year-old can. That should not be. It should be behind a counter. It might should be by prescription. It might should be in a special medical clinic where you can only get it on site. There are lots of regulation models that we could explore for these substances that are have a higher potential for harm. But we know that their potential for harm is incredibly more if we just leave them on the street corner to be accessed by anyone. A regulated market is not perfect. It is a realistic option in a world that's broken and in a world that has substances that are potentially harmful. So for me, as I try to think about, oh, how do I put this together with being politically conservative, with being uh, an evangelical Christian, um, which way is up? This feels like an earthquake to me, putting all of this new information into that. But what I began to see over time is that actually um, a regulated market is in line with my deepest values. I think it is absolutely a conservative um, position. It is also a progressive position. I think it actually gets all of us more of what we really want. Um, I think it's a pro-life position. I also think it's a position that people who are not pro-life um, can support because it helps all of us with what we want. It is good policy no matter where you fall on the political spectrum or on the faith spectrum. So for me, as somebody who's politically conservative and a Christian, I came back to what is a deeper foundational belief for me than um, my support for the war on drugs. And that is this belief in the absolute value of every single human life. And when I put that value of life up against what's actually happening in the drug war, not maybe what we want to be happening, but what is actually happening, uh, and I saw how many people are dying and how many people are being harmed, um, it's just fundamentally opposed to what I believe in um, as somebody who wants to value every single life. 
Um, so I still think people are responsible for their drug use, but we are responsible for our response to that. And if we have laws that are responding to people's drug use in a way that is causing death and destruction, then that responsibility falls on us as a society to change those laws in ways that are more in keeping with our values. So Joanne today is doing great. She has been sober for four years. Um, Her son just celebrated his fourth birthday. I just saw pictures of it on Facebook. Um, And she works now full-time in the drug treatment industry. Um, That doesn't always happen, but it could only happen because she's not in prison. Nikki is a mom very much like Joanne. She was also using substances while she was pregnant, but that substance use got on the radar of the criminal justice system. She was arrested and prosecuted for her prenatal drug use, and she is now spending a 15-year prison sentence in North Mississippi. Um, Her mom is raising her children, and um, when I asked her mom for permission to use their story in the presentations that I give, the first words out of her mouth were, thank you for not forgetting us. It is incredibly painful and traumatic. to have a family member in prison. And Nikki's family is living that right now for the next 15 years. Her children will miss their mother for most of her, most of their childhood, a mother who was a great mother to them, who loved them, who was working. Um, And Nikki's drug use is not what caused 15 years separation from her family. Our criminalization of her drug use is what caused that. And that is on us. So people like Joanne and Nikki changed my heart and the research and evidence changed my mind. I think a lot of what we do right now is just trying to pick up the pieces of the lives who are destroyed by this criminal approach to drugs. And what I want us to do is to step back and say, how, instead of just picking up the pieces, could we keep from shattering people's lives in the first place? How could we have fewer lives that have been torn apart that need picking up um, and more people who have never had that experience of having their lives broken and needing to be rebuilt? So the drug war did have a beginning. If you've listened to this podcast, you know uh, that beginning. Um, And it will have an end. I absolutely believe it will end in my lifetime. But that's not a foregone conclusion. It's been going for 100 years because not enough people have been willing to stand up and say enough. It'll end when that happens, when enough of us stand up and make our voices heard in respectful ways, inviting people to understand what's really happening and to explore alternatives to this criminal approach to drugs. That's how the drug war is going to end. And that's up to us, to people who want to see it end, be willing to be vulnerable and to invite other people into this conversation. And that's how our policies change. So policies change when minds change. So if we want legal regulation to happen, that means more people need to change their minds. And that means those of us who have already changed our minds need to be about the business of inviting more people onto that journey. Stephen Covey says change happens at the speed of trust. That's absolutely true, especially on this issue. People want to be invited to consider it by somebody that they trust, and that is you and me. Um, If you want to do that using Enter for Goods resources, that's why we exist, to provide resources for people to start this journey uh, and to get curious. So our Enter for Good Facebook page is out there, Um, obviously this podcast, and if you're in Mississippi, an Enter for Good gathering Um, You can come to those. You can sign up for our email list and get the information about where those gatherings are at enditforgood.com. Scroll to the bottom of the homepage and sign up for our email list there. I'll leave you with this quote because I think this is the way forward for us on drug policy if we want to see reform. Margaret Mead said, never doubt that a small group of thoughtful, committed citizens can change the world. Indeed, it is the only thing that ever has. So how do we end our criminal approach to drugs? by changing one mind at a time. 
Many people are only willing to have this conversation when they are invited to by someone they trust. That's you. Invite your friends, family, and people in your circle of influence to consider a better way. At End It For Good, our hope is that people who hear will become people who tell. Join the movement to end it for good.